0: Thank you, guys. If you would take your Bibles, your daily bread, not the booklet, but your Bible, which is your daily bread as we were singing. Before we pray and get into uh, uh, what I have for you today, I, I do want you to pray for me. And this is an exciting thing. This is a blessed thing uh, for a father. But uh, this afternoon, uh, I will be heading over to Grand Rapids and a little bit north of Grand Rapids to uh, uh, a home on a lake that's been made available to us, and I will be there for the next two days with two of my sons, Lon and Seth, who are pastors, and this year, my granddaughter, who just graduated from college with a degree in church ministry. And we are going to have a Bjornrud church ministry retreat. And uh, we're going to spend these days together studying Scripture together. And I don't even plan it. They invite me to come along. And uh, we're going to study the Word and talk about ministry and pray with and for each other and eat and watch football and just have a great time. So uh, pray for us. Pray that it will be a great time. Uh, just the idea that it's going to happen is uh, a blessing to uh, this dad's heart, and uh, uh just pray that it will be to my sons and granddaughter as well. Uh, would you stand with me and pray before we go into the Word? <clears throat> our Father, thank you for this time that we've already had. Lord, we have heard of your work among our women. We thank you so much for that. And Father, we have sung songs that talk about you being on the throne, you reigning, you having the final say in our lives, us being desperate for you, saying that your word to us is daily bread. Songs that submitted to you, submitted to what you say. Father, I pray that as we go into this message and, and work through it, that we would remember those statements and their truth from those songs. Father, guide us now. We need your guidance. We're desperate for it. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Pastor um, Brandon Robertson is... Um, a practicing gay man who has uh, many, many visitors on his blog on the Internet. An interesting thing that he says in one of his blogs is that he believes the present-day LGBTQ movement had its start in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And I think that makes sense. And those of you who were around at that time, I was playing high school sports and graduating and spending my first years in college at that time. And as I recall, what he has said makes sense. Because during that period of years, we had what was called the sexual revolution. Remember that? Free love, free sex, Do whatever you please in the area of sexuality. It's your choice. If it feels good, do it. Um, Be whatever you want to be, be whoever you want to be. And taking drugs will make it even better. Uh, A lot of us saw recently the movie from that same period of time called The Jesus Revolution. Unless you think that was the major revolution, as great as the Jesus Revolution was, it was also the sexual revolution. I was doing some math. Those who, during that period of time, who were aged maybe 16 to 24, Are now 70 to 76, 77 years old. And for the last decades, many of those people have been our college professors, they have been our business leaders, they have been our politicians. They have been the leaders of our media and entertainment. And now many of them are retiring. But there's a whole generation that they have effectively over the decades influenced that started with their participation in the sexual revolution. And they have been effective in the classrooms and in the literature and in the business world and politics, entertainment and media with their influence. I think Brandon Robertson has a point. That's where this present LGBTQ movement had its start. At least it's interesting to think along those lines. Um, Two weeks ago when we started this series, on your study sheet there was a list of what uh, uh, those in the LGBTQ community called the clobber scriptures. Um, And I had asked you to spend some time uh, looking at those scriptures to see what is written. You know, what do the scriptures say about what we were going to Talk about these weeks. Um, I hope you did. If you didn't, those scriptures are on your uh, uh, study sheet today. And we're actually going to go through most of them very briefly so that I can point out something to you. Um, The people in that movement call them clobber scriptures because they feel, and in some cases, rightly so, I would have to admit that Christians have been using those scriptures to clobber them, which by that they mean condemn them. And I think some Christians have earned that accusation. But let's look at what they say, because that's what's important. What is written in these scriptures? Uh, The first one is, Uh, In Genesis 19, we're not going to go there. I'll just remind you that that is the account of a man named Lot. Lot and his family lived in uh, the city of Sodom. And in those verses in Genesis 19, there's the account of two angels being sent by God in the form of men, two humans. And the account says that the, the men of Sodom, the citizens of Sodom found out about these two visitors, these two men that Lot had in his home, and they went to Lot's home and wanted him to send those two men out so that they could have sexual relations with him. And uh, Lot said no, and he called it wicked. If you go over to the book of Second Peter, you find reference to that account in Genesis 19, and in Second Peter, what those men were proposing uh, to do is called depraved conduct. In the little book of Jude in the New Testament, in verse seven there, Jude makes reference to that same Genesis 19 account, and he refers to what those men were suggesting as sexual immorality and perversion. Now, granted, that is one account, one happening that's described in Genesis 19. But then we go on in the Old Testament, we come to the book of Leviticus, chapter 18. And in Leviticus, chapter 18, we're kind of right in the middle of God putting together his nation, Israel. And he's presenting his laws. Uh, There are religious laws. There are civil laws and there are moral laws. And he's creating a nation. That's what he's doing. And uh, for a nation to uh, not experience chaos, you need boundaries. You need laws. And so that's what God's doing in uh, this book that a lot of us can't make it through. Uh, It's kind of tough. But in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and even some in Exodus, he's forming a nation and presenting his laws. And in chapter 18, in the first verses, he says to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord, your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord, your God. And so from the beginning of verse uh, one and going into the rest of the chapter, the purpose of this chapter is to let the Israelites know what will not be acceptable. And he says, I want you to be different First of all, from the land you just came from where you were slaves, I don't want you to practice the same things the Egyptians did. I want you to be different. I don't want you to practice the things that the nations practice that I'm bringing you to, Canaan, and the people who live there. I don't want you to be like them. So basically, he's saying, and he'll say it later, I want you to be holy like I'm holy. I want you to be different. And so in chapter 18, he specifically goes into the area of sexuality. And perhaps you read it in the last two weeks. But he lists all these possible sexual relations that a person could have, that people could have. And the implication seems to be that the people of Egypt practice these things, and the people of Canaan practice these things, and I don't want my people to practice them. I want you to be different. I want you to be holy. And in the list, in this whole chapter of different um, sexual relations that he says you must not practice, we come to verse 22. And he says, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. So. It's there in the midst of this whole list of sexual relations that God's people are not to be involved in if they're going to be different, if they're going to be holy. Well, that's Old Testament, right? That's Old Testament law. Let's go to the New Testament. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter one. In Romans chapter one, Paul is going to uh, uh, prepare his readers for what he's going to do in much of the book, and that's to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. But before he presents the gospel, he's going to remind them of the sinfulness of man that requires salvation. That re- the gospel. And so, in verse 18, he begins to talk about the sinfulness of man. And we're going to look at this again next week in more detail. But basically, he says, man has rejected God. Even though if they just look and think and realize there is a God, man has basically chosen to reject Him and not worship Him. And they worship God. Other things. And he goes on to say, with that choice, mankind has found itself moving certain directions. What that choice to reject God and not worship him has led to. And, and here's something that it has led to. Verse 26. He says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6. Starting in verse 9, Paul says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And then he lists different sinful practices that, if continued, would keep people from the kingdom of God. And so he says, uh, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, "...nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God." And then he says this, and we'll talk about it uh, toward the end today. "...and that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus." So, Paul is saying... Here are some of the sexual practices, some of the sexual lifestyles, where if that doesn't change, they will keep you from entering the kingdom of God. And he lists a number of them. And we find out that there were people in the Corinthian church who in their past had lived some of those kinds of lifestyles. But he says, that's what you were. That's the past. You've been changed. You've been sanctified. You've been saved through the name of Jesus. 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Starting in verse 8. By the way, have you noticed that You know, you had one account in the Old Testament about this. You had one other passage about it in Leviticus. But now we're on our third, fourth, or fifth one in the New Testament. So, those who might try to hold on to, well, that was old, not new, pay attention. First Timothy chapter 1. Uh, let's start verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So all those things in that list, contrary to sound doctrine. So there you have what some call the clobber scriptures that uh, they believe Christians have used to condemn them. In your reading prior to today, or as we just quickly went through them, did you notice a couple things that are common to all of those? Passages, those six or seven passages, the first thing that's common is they all mention somewhere in them same gender sexual relations. Every one of them, somewhere in those passages, that subject was mentioned. So that's common to all of them. The second thing that's common to all of those scriptures is that all of those scriptures, in one way or another, and there are many different words and phrases used, as you noticed, refer to same-gender sexual relations as sin, as unacceptable to God, as wrong. Every one of those scriptures uses words or phrases to communicate that about that practice, about that lifestyle. So here's the question that we're going to think about for a while. Why? Why is it wrong? Why, why, why does Scripture in the Old and New, why does Scripture in every one of these six or seven passages in some way present same-gender sexual relations is wrong, unacceptable to God, unholy sin. I mean, they do that, but the question is, why? Why would it be wrong? Why would it be unacceptable to God? Why would he put it in the lists with other sinful practices? That's what I want us to think about. And to do that, we're going to do exactly what we did last week. We're going to go back to the beginning. So turn with me to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. I think the answer to the why question about why that uh, lifestyle and practice is wrong has to do with God's original design his original purpose for marriage and sexual relations. And we find his design and purpose at the very beginning. And his design brings together the subject of marriage and the subject of sexual relations. They go together to make up God's design and His purpose. So, let's just look at this. Many of you are familiar with this. uh, Common scriptures. Genesis 1, 27, 28. This is God creating, and now he's created man. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. So the scripture starts by saying God is the creator. We looked at that last week. And uh, included in his creation was mankind. And it's very clear, like we saw last week, that um, it it was uh, a binary creation, two, male, female, man, woman. That's it. There isn't a long list in this account. And. He had a couple commands for the first man and woman. The first command in verse 28 was be fruitful and increase in number. In other words, reproduce. Now, in order for them to obey that command, like what would be true of any command God gives, is that he would have to give the ability to follow it, right? We believe that whenever God gives a command, he has also given us the ability to follow that command. And here the first command was reproduce, be fruitful and multiply, which then makes sense that when he created that first man and first woman, he must have given them the ability to do that biologically, physically. And so we have the creation of the first man described in a few more details in chapter 2, which we looked at last week. And then verse 18, it says that um, God decided it wasn't good for the man to be alone. And so he was going to create a helper suitable for him going to create another being who would complement him, fit with him, come alongside of him. Why? Well, it wasn't good for the man to be alone. And so we think that the main reason God created the woman was to take care of the first man's loneliness, right? Because it's not good for him to be alone. He needs a companion. That might be part of it. But may I take you back to the first command. Be fruitful and multiply. If the man is going to follow that command, he can't do it alone. If he's going to obey that command, it's not good for him to be alone. He needs someone fitting, suitable to help. And so we're told that in verse 21, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and closed up the place with the flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, a woman. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, wow, this is great. That's really what he's saying. He liked what he saw. He liked what God had created. And he says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. very much like the man, both created in the image of God, sharing certain uh, qualities of God, not gods, not co-gods, but certain things that were true of God in a personal way became true of human beings, which are not true of any other part of creation. So in a lot of ways, they were alike, created alike. But we know that they were different in ways, too that God chose to create the man and the woman a bit different. Why? So they could follow the first command. Be fruitful and multiply. Because if he had created another man, another male, exactly like the first man, They couldn't have followed the command, couldn't have done it. And God's design and his plan would not have taken place. And so he created woman. Who was suitable, fitting to complement the man. And so you have this scripture. Which is pretty much the first scripture that points to marriage that follows. Verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. Notice man, wife, male, female. And they become one flesh. Now, I know that there are people, and maybe it's you, and so you'll disagree with me, but that's okay. But there are those who would, would like to go beyond what the words say here, the specific words, and they became one flesh. In Scripture, uh, the word flesh tends to mean one of two things, usually. Uh, especially in the New Testament, there are times when the word flesh can be uh, translated sinful nature. You might see that in some of your Bibles, because the flesh seems to be referring to something uh, along that line. You know, you've got the spirit and the flesh, and they war against each other in Galatians. And so there are times where the word flesh refers to that sin nature. And then other times, based on context, the word flesh simply means flesh, body. You know, the, the physical body. And you need to use context to determine which, which usage is here with the word flesh, because it comes from the same word. Well, here it says, um, a man will leave his father and mother be united, bonded, glued together with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, by context, I would say it doesn't mean they become one sin nature. It doesn't make sense. So that leaves us with physical body. I would suggest... That here we have the design for marriage from the beginning. A man and his wife. A man and a woman. Who've been created in such a way. That they can follow the first command. To be fruitful and multiply. They come together. They leave father and mother. And that will be the case from then on. And they're united to one another. They're bonded together. They're glued together, cleave, and then, in that order, they become one flesh. They experience the oneness of the body, which allows them to fulfill the first command. Because God made them very much alike as human beings but some very important differences. Here's the interesting thing. Does that design continue? Or as we go through Scripture, at some juncture does a change occur in the design? Because the design looks like, at least from the beginning... That marriage created by God, his idea, that marriage is designed to be about one man and one woman coming together in a special relationship that's consummated and that experiences a sexual relationship. At least it's the original design. It looks like that. A man, a woman, male and female, coming together, bonding. And then that bond, that commitment to each other, is communicated in a physical way. Because they're able to through God's creation. Does that ever change? Well, let's go to the Gospels. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. Jesus is uh, being challenged, as he often was, uh, by the religious leaders. And uh, here they're challenging him uh, along the subject of uh, marriage, divorce, that type of thing. His response is interesting. Verse 4. Matthew 19. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, he takes them back to the beginning. At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. Binary, two. And he said, and look what he quotes. He's now bringing it into the time of the Gospels. As relevant. And he says, for this reason, A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So that thought didn't stay in the Old Testament back in Genesis. Jesus picks it up as though it's relevant to his conversation. Then we go to the book of Ephesians, and we come to the time of the Apostles. Ephesians chapter 5. And we have that lengthy passage. We're familiar with it. We hear it at weddings often Um, concerning marriage, wives, husbands, instructions for the wives, instructions for the husbands, um, the man, the woman. And as Paul is, is teaching on it, he eventually comes to verse 31. And look what he does. He goes back to the beginning and he relates something from Genesis 2 to the present situation. And he quotes, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. What you have is that same design. That same plan and purpose stated in the Old Testament from the beginning, in the Gospels by Jesus, and in the epistles by the Apostle Paul. Did God's original design get changed in Scripture? There is a consistency throughout Scripture concerning marriage and sexual relations. It's one man, one woman, joining together in, in covenant, is what the Bible calls it. And then in that covenant, being given this special, unique experience of sexual relations. And I would suggest to you that all through Scripture, any other Sexual relations are presented as outside that relationship. And if there are any sexual relations outside that marriage relationship, Scripture consistently refers to them as sexual immorality. It's like God created marriage. He created the sexual relationship. For the marriage, that's the boundary. And for the rest of Scripture, any sexual relationship outside that boundary of a one man, one woman marriage relationship is a violation of the design and the purpose of marriage. So that means incest would be outside that boundary. Prostitution would be outside that boundary. Rape would be outside that boundary. Adultery would be outside that boundary. Pre-marriage sexual relations would be outside that boundary. All, consistently in Scripture, referred to as a violation. Immorality. And that would include what? Same gender. Sexual relations. And so why, why do those scriptures that we went through, six or seven of them, all talk about same-gender sexual relations in the context of being a violation, being immoral, being unnatural, being shameful, being contrary to sound doctrine? Why? Because they violate God's original design for marriage and sexual relations. So there is a reason behind it. And it goes all the way back to the beginning. God's design. God's purpose for marriage. And all this other stuff violates that purpose and that design. And that's why those scriptures call it what they call it you see like we said last week God has set the standard God has set the baseline and it is consistent throughout scripture you would think that if God intended for that original standard and baseline to change it would be important enough to let us know. Now, there are those who say, well, we can change it. We can change it because the Bible was written at a different time. Our situation is different today. <clears throat> and so we have to reevaluate what these scriptures say. And i tell you what, I've been reading some books and I'm getting tired of all the interpretive calisthenics these people go through. To somehow get these scriptures to align with a behavior and a movement and a lifestyle that's going on today. <clears throat> but the question always remains, what is written? Right? What is written? So, to wrap it up, let me. Um, <clears throat> I have a word for <clears throat> the homosexual person, and I have a word for um, the heterosexual person. Um, did you know that those two terms did not even appear till the middle 1800s? And a man named Sigmund Freud came up with those two terms to describe two categories of sexual. Uh, attraction sexual orientation sexual practice <clears throat> but those two terms didn't even come up till till Sigmund Freud so what what would i have to say to the homosexual <clears throat> first of all i would say if if that person is not a follower of jesus christ I would just be honest and and say to them, you know, whatever I I share with you, you just need to know that it's based on a standard and and, and a a baseline that I take from Scripture. Because I believe Scripture. I believe it's God's Word. Um, All Scripture is God-breathed. I believe that. And because of that, I believe it's truth. And it gives us God's standard and and baseline. So I just want you to know that that's where I'm coming from. And and you may not believe that about the Bible, so we may not agree. But I just want you to know that's where I'm coming from. Even though that might not matter to you. And I would want a discussion about what is it that... And we're going to talk more about this in the last message. But I I would want to know what is it that has led you to this? Um, By by what authority, by what standard have you come to believe this and now live this? Um, If it's not the Bible. And a lot of times it would be feelings, probably. Uh, emotions, desires, uh, maybe it's culture pressure, uh, maybe it's uh, media. Maybe I don't know what it is, but uh, if, if if you're not a follower of Christ, and you know the Bible isn't important to you, then something must be leading you to this. Uh, something must be your authority on this, and it's usually those things. Remember the old song. How could it be wrong if it feels so right? Remember that old song? Um, Sounds like where you're getting your authority. And I probably would just warn them. You know, you may not hold the Bible as um, authority, but there is a verse in the Proverbs that says there's there's a way that seems right to a person, but the end leads to ruin. And I just want to warn you about possible practical consequences of the choices you're making. But you see, if I'm speaking a word to uh, someone involved in the homosexual uh, lifestyle, I may not be speaking just to an unbeliever. I may be speaking to somebody who professes to be a follower of Jesus. And many of us may know, and love, and care about some of those people. <clears throat> now, if I have a word for them, I, I might come from a different direction, because if if they're professing to be a follower of Christ, I would need to know. Well, then, do you also profess that the Bible's God's word? Do you believe that? Do you believe that because it's God's word, it's truth? And that all Scripture is given but the inspiration of God. It's His Word, His standards, His principles, His baseline for how we live. You profess to be a follower of Christ. Do you also profess that kind of view of God's Word? Because if they do, then you can start moving in that direction, right? Because if you profess that about God's Word... What is written? What is written? And if there's some reason why you can hold to the authority of God's Word in every other area, but you draw the line here, how did you get to that place? As someone who professes to know Jesus and follow Him and hold to the authority of God's Word. You would have to go through a lot of interpretive calisthenics to make all those scriptures that are consistent say something else. A word for the heterosexual. You know, we have bodies too. That God created. And God's design and standards and baseline for marriage and thus sexual relations apply to us, obviously. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1, if you have such a Bible, it's in red. Jesus speaking, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, the standard you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank, some Bibles say log, out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye to help him or her. As I said earlier, I think there are Christians who have earned this idea of clobber scriptures. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. And I don't know your thoughts, your feelings toward, you know, people in the world who, who practice same-gender sexual relations, attraction, orientation. I don't know how you feel about professing Christians, choosing that. I don't know how you have tended to treat them, your attitude toward them. Let me remind you what Jesus said. In this context, there are heterosexual logs that could be in the eyes of Christians who are judging those who are making these same gender choices. You have to ask, I have to ask the question what is written? What is written for me as a heterosexual who is maybe single or, or maybe in a marriage? What's written? There's a lot written. First Corinthians six, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Honor God with your body. Flee sexual immorality. What's sexual immorality? Every sexual relationship outside the boundaries of of a one-man-to-one-woman marital relationship. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, and they're on your sheet. You can read them. What is written? Paul says, this is God's will for you as Christians, to be sexually pure, holy, to learn how to control your body sexually. In Hebrews 13, the writer says, honor marriage. And it goes on to say, the way you can honor marriage is to not commit adultery and list a couple other sexual sins outside of marriage. You honor marriage by staying within God's design and purpose for the sexual relationship. I think that we as Christians need to be very careful in addressing the choices of the world, the choices of those who profess to be Christians. And maybe they are, or they're, they're, they're struggling, and they have given in to this temptation, and, and there's a bondage. But we have to be careful. And we'll get more specific in a couple of weeks more careful about how we address that. Because so often, we aren't addressing the logs in our life as far as sexuality is concerned. Whether it's adultery or lusting after someone we shouldn't lust after or pornography or premarital sexual relations. I mean... We've got to make sure that we aren't carrying a, a log in our lives. When we're trying to address what's happening in somebody else's life and their choice and lifestyle. We need to honor God with our bodies. We need to follow God's will and be sexually pure in our lives. We need to honor marriage. God's design. We need to deal with our lust. We may have logs in our own eyes in this area. And Jesus doesn't say, never address that in somebody else's life. But you notice what he says, the order deal with the log in your life, then you will be able to help that person. You catch that? He doesn't say what they're doing is okay, he doesn't say, leave them alone. But he says, make sure you address any logs in your life. Then you'll be able to be helpful to someone else. So So, anyway, conclusion. God is God. God reigns. He has something to say about almost every subject, including sexuality and same-gender sexual relations. He has a design for marriage, for sexual relations, and they go together. And that's where they're supposed to stay, according to Scripture. It never changes. And we just sang a bunch of songs About Him being God alone. And we submit to Him. No other God, including sexuality. And our feelings, and our emotions, and our pleasures, and our desires. We just sang a song and heard songs about God reigning. He's the authority. What He says goes. We submit. We just sang a song about God's Word being our daily bread. And we desperately need it? Are we living out the words of those songs, and if you're struggling if if you're a person who when I was just saying some some things sharing some thoughts to those who um may have the the same gender, attraction, orientation, even involved in in that kind of sexual relation. Or if I was speaking to someone who professes to be a follower of Christ, or then to the rest of us that we need to make sure we're honoring God in that whole area. If it's a real struggle for you, and it can be, it it can be. In fact, let me read something here. This is a book by Kevin DeYoung. And and here's something that he says. He says, uh, there are those who profess Christ and practice same gender sexual intimacy. They should not think that God always says what we want him to say. The Bible has to have the last word on what is good for us and what brings glory to God. You see what God has to say about homosexuality, but your heart doesn't utter the same sentiment. God's word says it's sinful, and your heart says it feels right. God's word says it's abominable, but your heart says it's delightful. God's word says it's unnatural, but your heart says it's totally normal. Do you see that there is a clear divide between what God's word says and how your heart feels? This is a great tension. It's a difficult struggle. He's not clobbering people. But he's saying, think about this. Think about what or who is ruling in your life. Think about what you've done if you're a professing believer. You see what God's word says. But because your heart and your feelings and your emotions and your pleasures and your desires aren't in the same direction, you choose those things over what God's Word says, what is written. And if you're a professing follower of Christ, you need to think about that. Before God, you need to think about that. Now, that's not clobbering you, is it? In 1 Corinthians 6, the most powerful words that Paul writes in that passage. Remember, he talks about different lifestyles and practices. And if you continue in that, you will not enter the kingdom. And uh, same gender, sexual relations was part of that list. But the most important part of that passage are the two words that he ends with. But you were... I guess that's three words... But you were those things. And you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not you anymore. He's transformed you. Every person who struggles in the area of sexuality can be a you were person. You can be a you person. Because our God has the ability to change us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank You. These are hard things. Uh, like some other areas, Lord, we, we read Your Word and we see You doing things that they go against how we're feeling and, and what we're experiencing and what we're desiring. and Lord, and then we have to make a decision. Do we follow the God and his word that we profess to follow? Is what is written important to us? Father, however you need to deal with any of us here from this time, We invite you to do that. We are desperate for you to show us what we need to do in response to what is written. In Christ's name, amen.